Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. And uh, let's show our appreciation to those fabulous children's ministry workers. And uh, don't they do a great job down there? And last week, was that not an amazing song that the kids led for us? I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. And uh, it was so good, I confess, I actually thought they were singing to a track with background vocals. Uh, But it turns out that was all them. And uh, they just did an incredible job, so appreciate them. And I appreciate whoever installed this fabulous uh, new lens or screen or whatever. Is this, where is Pastor Rob? Is he still here? Where did he go? There he is. Is that a whole new thing or just a new lens? Whole new thing. It's it's like a bold new world up there behind me. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. Appreciate all the people who managed the scaffolding and made that happen as well. Well, good morning, church. Uh, Good morning, balcony. Good to see you up there. And I would love for you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 25. That's on page 921 in the Pew Bibles. We are jumping back into our series through the book of Acts. And uh, this morning we're looking at the second half of the story that was told to us a few weeks ago by Pastor Matt. You remember that King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed the apostle James with the sword. He seized the apostle Peter and threw him into prison. But then, as Pastor Matt told us, earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. And an angel of the Lord was sent to release him. And that story, of course, is an illustration of the truth that is celebrated in places like Psalm 6820. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Now, if the story ended there, if that was the end of chapter 12, it would be a wonderful chapter all on its own. But as you know, if you've read the Bible before, it actually goes on and gets even better. Because not only is our God a God of salvation to whom belong deliverances from death, He is also a God of power, providence, and judgment. He breaks the arm of the evildoer. He pulls the teeth of the lion, he sits as sovereign even over kings. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We sometimes uh, refer to Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, as Luke the historian. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and that explains in part his knowledge of these events. With your Bible open in front of you, this sermon, as most sermons, will make a little more sense. If you have a Bible open in front of you, paper Bible in particular will make this easy for you. Just zoom out a little bit. I want you to see the brackets 
for this story. As I mentioned, uh, we're doing the second half of the story that takes up all of chapter 12, but it's really all one big story. So look at the last verse before this story, the last verse of chapter 11. That's 1130. There was a famine in the land at the time that had particularly affected the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and so an offering was taken in Antioch, and that money was going to be sent to the elders of the church in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That verse 30 tells us that. They did so. They sent this money, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so that's the verse that comes before our story. Now look at the very last verse of our story, chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Are you seeing that? What that means is that Saul, whom we know better as the Apostle Paul, was actually in Jerusalem for all of the events that are narrated in chapter 12. Have you ever thought about that? That means he, he may very well have been in the prayer meeting that was happening in John Mark's mother's house when they were praying for the release of Peter. That seems very likely because, as I said, Saul was there. We also know that he was, along with Barnabas, trying to recruit John Mark for the next phase in the expansion of the church, which we'll hear about in chapter 13. So Paul was there. He was almost certainly Luke's primary source for this story. However, Luke was not the only person interested in this story. This story was actually well-known in the ancient world. The Roman historian Josephus records this story as well, and he pays particular attention to the strange and sudden death of King Herod, and he regards it much the same way Luke does, and he records it very similarly. He says that Herod acted arrogantly. Josephus goes on, and he he has a lot of extra detail that's not in Luke. He tells us what Herod was wearing. He tells uh, tells us a little bit more about the speech. Uh, But the main thing is, both Josephus and Luke tell us that Herod allowed himself to be addressed as a god. And immediately after that, Josephus records, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He provides a bit of a description of that. He goes on to say at the end, accordingly he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time, which he did just five days later. So as I said, historians in the ancient world were intrigued by this story. It's a story of of someone at their peak of glory doing something and then immediately being judged by Almighty God. That's how the story was recognized. It was recognized in the ancient world as an act of divine judgment. Medical historians have always been interested in this story. As I said, Josephus gives us a little more detail. You put Josephus' detail together with what Luke says, and medical historians like Dr. Rendell Short suggest that This death was caused by an infestation of intestinal worms, which may have balled together to create an acute intestinal obstruction that would have led to a slow and agonizing death. That's probably more detailed than you wanted, isn't it? (laughs) There it is. But as I said, it was viewed as an act of divine judgment, which is no doubt why Luke felt compelled to share it. He wants us to understand that God is sovereign even over kings and all those in authority. That is a constant theme in the pages of Holy Scripture. And and to be clear, I'm not just talking about 
Jewish kings or Christian kings. I'm talking about all kings and all those in authority. In fact, the first time Bible reader is often surprised by the number of times that the biblical narrative is interrupted so that there can be some kind of oracle of judgment against a foreign power. You certainly have that experience when you read through the book of Jeremiah, don't you? This, this past week, if you're an RMM user, you were reading through the book of Isaiah, and you were reading through that section of Isaiah, which is interrupted by all of these oracles against foreign powers. There's oracles against Moab, Cush, Egypt, Damascus. One certainly begins to get the idea that everyone in the universe, and particularly kings and those in authority, are under the scrutiny of a sovereign God, whether they know it or not. God holds his covenant people to a higher standard, but he holds all people to some kind of general standard. We see that dynamic very clearly in the book of Amos. God sends the prophet to deliver oracles against the nations. Amos 1.13, for example, says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. So, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. So apparently, the Ammonites were guilty of committing atrocities in the conduct of battle. And for that transgression, their king will go into exile, and the nation will suffer catastrophic defeat at the hands of their enemy. So God holds the nations to some kind of standard. There is some kind of natural law to which all people everywhere are subject, whether they know it or not. And that natural law, that universal standard, has been imprinted on the human heart. There's no one anywhere who can say that they're not aware of this standard. There is such a thing as a conscience. That conscience tells us stuff. It reminds us of limits. It restrains us. It whispers somewhere in the back of our head, you are not a God and don't ever mess with pregnant women. And apparently, if you fail to heed those basic standards and restrictions, then you get a visit from Almighty God. The Lord holds the nations to some kind of general standard. He holds his covenant people, though, to a much higher standard. You see that again in Amos. Just a little later in Amos, it says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lives have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds, of Jerusalem. And the people are like, of, of Judah are like, wait, hold on a second. What the heck? I mean, the Ammonites are ripping open pregnant women and, and we're, you know, breaking some of the Ten Commandments and you're treating us as if we, to the exact same standard that you're treating them. You're giving us the punishment you gave them. What, what's up with that? And, and the answer comes in the next chapter. You only have I known of all the families of the earth Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do you see that? The closer you are to God, the higher the standard to which 
you are held account. And so the bar is very high in here inside the covenant community. But the point of this story in Acts 12 is to remind us that there is a bar out there. It's not as though there's a bar in here and no bar out there. The issue is higher bar in here, still high bar out there. There's a bar for all people. And there is a bar even for kings and those who exercise authority. Our God watches, our God sees, and our God comes. And that's the second reason I think Luke feels compelled to share the story. He wanted to remind us that God regularly intervenes in human history. Now, I'm going to guess that if you're here this morning, it's because you're a Christian or because you are at least in sympathy with Christian teaching. I can't imagine you just wandered in here thinking it was free bingo night or something like that. Like, so this is a, a fairly select audience. So this point probably falls with a bit of a thud on you. You just feel like, well, obviously God regularly intervenes in human history. But you need to know, this is actually a bit of a Christian distinctive. This, this idea that God intervenes directly, has an interest in, and actively invades so as to manipulate or, or guide human events. That's a fairly distinctive notion. It's certainly different than the God of the deists, isn't it? The God of the deists, deism actually is fairly common in our culture. It was remarkably common in European and North American culture in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century. Deism is the idea that surely there is a creator. I mean, how can you look at the universe and not believe that there's a creator? Obviously, there's a creator. But that creator, deism would say, that creator set up the universe, established the laws of physics, sort of set the whole universe in motion like a clock, and then went off into some other corner of the universe to do something more interesting. Sometimes you'll hear it said that God is a clockmaker who sets the clock in order and then goes off to play croquet in the heavenlies. Meaning, he's not very interested, actually, in personal affairs. He's not very interested in what we do. That's up to us. Deists would say it's our job to understand how the universe works and try to manipulate those principles to our own advantage. God certainly isn't keeping score. God doesn't care. He's gone off to do something else. That basic idea has been popular throughout the ages, but it is certainly not the view of reality that is espoused in the scriptures. Again, if you're an RMM Bible reader, just this morning you would have read 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter actually addresses this. He says, understand this, there are plenty of people who say, uh, you know, oh, the world will just carry on the way it always has, right? A, a sort of uniformitarian view of history, you know, that everything like, is like a glacier. History is like a glacier. It, it can do, obviously, great things, but only in tiny, tiny increments, and everything just kind of goes along uh, for millions and billions, and how, whoever knows how, how long. History just moves along slowly in the same basic tra- trajectory and, and direction. And Peter says, no, that's That's not how it works at all. He says, and of course you know that because you have read in the Bible about the flood. Well, what's the flood? The flood is a great interruption of God. History was going this way and God looked down and didn't like it, so he intervened. And in a catastrophe, completely altered the trajectory of the human story. Well, Peter says, of course, that happens. We need to understand that happens. You're a fool if you think that history is just going to go on the way it's going on right now. Christians need to understand this because sometimes we see the culture moving in a particular direction and we just forecast one or two or three generations into the future and we say, well, that's how it will be. 
which is to forget that God regularly intervenes, changes the course of human history. Of course, that's the main point being made in the night visions of Zechariah. Maybe you remember that. It's not just a New Testament idea that God intervenes. It's all over the Bible. In Zechariah, we have these eight night visions, and the theme of the whole is that God is in charge. He knows what's going on. Israel was wondering at the time, what in the world's happened to us? We've been into exile. Now we're back from exile. But it doesn't look like these nations around us have been suitably punished. It doesn't look like we're having a great time over here. Makes one even wonder if God is watching. Has God maybe gone off somewhere into the universe to play croquet? That's what they were wondering. And the night visions are given to answer that. The first night vision, maybe you remember, featured a group of horsemen. Horsemen were used in the ancient world to bring back information to the emperor from the far-flung corners of the empire. And so, Zechariah 1.10, an interpretation is given. These are they, these horses are they, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So the angels are spies. They're on a reconnaissance mission. They're collecting information. This is a symbol-laden way of saying God knows exactly what is going on in the world. He's not in the dark. He's not disinterested. He's not off playing croquet. He's receiving reports. In the second night vision, you have four blacksmiths or four craftsmen. Some of your translations will have that. We're told, these have come to terrify them, that is, these hostile nations that the Jewish people were concerned about. These have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the, Lord, against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the craftsmen there represent agents of providence. God is saying, understand this, I have a plan, I have, I have techniques, I have technicians, I have agents of providence that are perfectly capable of addressing the problems that are afflicting you, so don't you worry about that. And then in the final night vision, the prophet sees four chariots, and they charge out from the throne room of God through the gates, and then they spread off to all these different directions. Old Testament scholar Anthony Pedersen says here, whereas the horses in the first vision were involved in surveillance on behalf of the Lord, these horses and chariots subdue the nations as his heavenly army and are an expression of his sovereignty over all the earth. That's the point. Not only does God see, not only does he receive information, not only does he develop plans, eventually, when the time is right, God sets those plans in motion. He releases agents of providence who go out and execute judgments upon the earth. God does not sit passively on the throne. He is never indifferent. He may be slow to act, but he acts in the end. He measures the devil's chain. And from time to time, when it is necessary, he makes appropriate adjustments. We see that time and again in the Old Testament. We see it all over the Bible. Luke wants to make sure we're seeing it here. John Stott comments helpfully on this passage in Acts 12, saying, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, 
Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Praise the Lord. God is sovereign over even hostile human powers. And he is eternally committed to the health, growth, and triumph of his covenant people. That's the third thing Luke is eager for us to see in the story. Look again at the very end of the story. Look at the final three verses there. Luke says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Do you see that? Luke is not trying to be subtle here. He's putting all the cookies for us on the bottom shelf. He wants us to understand. It doesn't matter if the king wants to kill you. It doesn't matter if the king is opposed to our mission. Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with us give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. That's the point, isn't it? If God is for us, who could be against us? If Jesus himself is interceding for us, if he is praying for us, then how can any scheme of the devil succeed against us? That's the idea. And God is for us. Just as he was for Christ in raising him from the dead on the third day. So to be clear, he is not for us in the sense that he will not allow us ever to suffer. See again Christ on the cross. But he is for us in the sense that he will never allow us to be destroyed. He will monitor and measure the devil's chain such that we are pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. That's what the Bible says. He will design and control our environment to stimulate maturity, to eliminate impurity, and to maximize our potency in mission. God knows what he's doing. He has tools at his disposal, and he is maximally committed to the health, growth, and triumph of his people. Herod raged, Herod died, and the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. That's the point. Now, in the time that we have left, I just want to draw out a couple of what I think are personal and practical applications that flow out of the text for us. I think, first of all, this story should moderate and temper our reliance upon statecraft. By statecraft, I mean the attempt to improve our situation as Christians in the culture by means of the political process. To state the obvious, that isn't what happened in this story. In this story, the Christians were being harassed and hunted down. Let me read again the first line in the story. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So the story begins with an outbreak 
of formal state persecution. But then notice all the things that Luke doesn't say after that. He, he doesn't say. So all the young men got together in the church. And, and they were thankful for the Second Amendment because that allowed them, you know, to bear arms. I'm not an American, so I don't even know if that's the right amendment. Whatever. You know the one. All the, it doesn't say all the young men got together, got their guns, and made a run on the Capitol. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say. So the church banded together and violently resisted the tyranny of the oppressor. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that the church started a super PAC to support ambassadors and diplomats who would speak on behalf of the church to Rome. Doesn't say that either. It is strangely silent on issues of politics and statecraft. What it says is that earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer is the default response of the believing church to persecution and difficulty. Now, hold on. Is that to say that there is no legitimate option for for believers in, in the field of politics? No, of course not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it is not the priority option for believers, at least not in our best days. Of course, there have been times when we have looked to statecraft to advance the cause of Christ instead of turning to prayer. We think of the Crusades, for example, not our finest hour. And yet, for some reason, this option has returned to prominence among many younger Christians in North America today. The reappearance of theonomy as a force to be reckoned with among evangelical Christians is perhaps the greatest surprise of my ministry lifetime. T. David Gordon remarks upon this phenomenon saying, possibly due to their post-millennialism, possibly due to their understandable heartbreak over the decline of the West, and possibly for other reasons, they have simply placed statecraft higher on their agenda than it is on other people's agenda. That's my fundamental concern with that movement. They are prioritizing approaches that have not typically been prioritized by Christians in the past. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that it's bad to vote. By all means, vote. To be clear, I'm I'm not saying that it's bad to be involved in the political process. By all means, get involved. What I'm saying is do not put your trust in those things to create the change that you are looking for. Those things should be your third, your fourth, your fifth, your sixth, your eighth priority. Your main trust should be in divine providence. And your default response to persecution and difficulty of any kind should be believing prayer. Now, if you're in this room today and you identify as a theonomist and you're offended by what I just said, I want to be very clear. I I want you to understand this. I am only talking to you if your priorities are out of whack. If you are trusting first and foremost in prayer and only leaning on politics and statecraft to a much lesser degree, then I'm not talking to you. We're on the same page. I'm saying that this text is saying that it is God who is ultimately sovereign over kings and over leaders of any type. It is God who lengthens and shortens the devil's chain. It is God who lifts up some and casts 
down others. And therefore, our first response, whenever there is a king who is putting pressure on us, whenever there is a leader who is opposed to us, our priority response ought to be as it is here in Acts 12. We must put our trust in earnest prayer made to God by the church. If that's not the first thing that you do, if that's not the thing you put most of your hope in, then you've not assimilated the lesson of this passage. And I would argue you have missed the point of the Bible as a whole. King David said 3,000 years ago, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Because if you're not doing that, I would argue your faith is not the faith of the Bible, Old Testament or New. And then secondly, in terms of implications and applications here, this story should prepare us for the experience of limited suffering. Now, notice that I use the word limited, not the word light, because the suffering in the story is certainly not light, is it? You know, James had his head cut off in this story. That's not light suffering at all. But it, but it was limited suffering. Because Herod intended to do the same thing to Peter, and he was restrained. He was kept from doing so by an angel of the Lord. Herod meant to oppress the church as a whole, but he was kept from doing so. If Dr. Rendell is uh, to be believed, then he was kept by doing that by a giant ball of intestinal worms. God apparently has many techniques at his disposal. (laughs) So God limited the duration of the persecution experienced by the church in Jerusalem. And that is typically the pattern that we see as we observe the course of history. We talked about this back when we were working through 1 Peter a couple of years ago. 1 Peter was written to a group of Christians living in the Roman province of Bithynia Pontus in what is today uh, the the country of modern-day Turkey. Things were getting difficult for them. Uh, The Romans were starting to figure out that that these Christians weren't Jews and, and therefore were not actually uh, eligible for the same sorts of religious freedoms that the Jews had been extended. And so they started to be forced out of the marketplace. They started to get fired from jobs, lose contracts. They started to to be socially stigmatized. And and again, remember, Christians are great at uh, projecting out history. We say, well, here's how it was in Grandma's day. Here's how it was in Papa's day. Here's how it is in my day. By goodness, by three, you know, three more years from now, it's going to be Armageddon. And, and, and that's what they were doing. They wrote to Peter. They were very nervous. They were very upset. Peter wrote back to them in A.D. 63, and he basically told them to calm down. He told them, don't exaggerate the difficulties that you're facing. Don't catastrophize. He said, I don't want you to run into the barn at the first sight of rain. That's not how a good farmer does it. I want you to stay in the field. I want you to keep working. I want you to do it. And, and don't, don't, don't let this little bit of antagonism towards you make you antagonistic and angry towards your neighbor. He said, you just keep doing the Christian thing, but do it with gentleness and respect. How about that? Turns out it was real good advice. Because there was no actual formal state persecution of Christians in that area until A.D. 112. That's 50 years later. They would have lost out on 50 years of meaningful ministry to their neighbors if they hadn't taken this advice seriously. 
And then even when that persecution did come in AD 112, do you know it lasted for less than a calendar year because the Romans figured out there's so many of these Christians and when they started arresting them and killing them, they realized, oh, oh my goodness, if we arrest and kill all the Christians, the entire economy is going to collapse. These people are really useful citizens. So they called it off. How about that? One of the ways you can save us from persecution is by being useful. Work on that this afternoon. <laughs> but then here's another funny thing. So that persecution lasted less than a year. And then this, the, the folks in that region enjoyed a further 200 years of peace and permission in the culture. Persecution didn't break out again there until A.D. 323. Now, granted, it was bad. Again, Simon Baker tells this story. He says, Roman governors were free to punish dissident Christians, shut down some churches, demolish others, and in the case of the bishops in the province of Bithynia Pontus, south of the Black Sea, murder key figureheads in the Christian clergy. According to Eusebius, their bodies were chopped up and thrown into the sea as food for fish. My mother doesn't like this part of the story, because actually, if you, if you read uh, Roman history, you discover that in the vast majority of the persecutions of Christians, they only arrested and killed the pastors. You're going to be fine. <laughs> Just chill out. <laughs> be nice to my mom, though. But again, thankfully, this outbreak of, of persecution was remarkably short. Once again, lasted less than a calendar year. This time it wasn't called off because the Christians were so awesome. It was called off because the emperor who was leading it lost a war. In A.D. 324, Licinius lost a civil war with Constantine, who subsequently united the empire and legalized Christianity throughout the land. So things went from very bad to actually really good in less than a calendar year. That's what I mean by limited suffering. God does sometimes lengthen the devil's chain. And with that permission, the devil invariably takes a big bite out of the bride of Christ. But this never happens outside of the control of providence. That bite always ends up serving a greater purpose. You know what it does? Every time, it sends nominal Christians running out of the church and back into the culture they never really left in the first place. And it increases strength, resolve, and solidarity in all those who are left behind. And it is almost always followed by a great leap forward for the church. As it was here in Acts 12, which leads us to our final reflection on the story. This story should remind us that the progress of the Great Commission is assured. Yes, there may be some ups and downs. Yes, there may be occasional pruning. Yes, there may be some difficult seasons. But the overall trajectory is onward, upward, and outward. Now, how do I know that, you ask? Well, I know that because Jesus said that on multiple occasions. He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, 
it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. And he said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. My dear friends, I've read to the end of the story. I took a peek at the last chapter, and we win. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of heaven will spread. It will emerge in a dark and dying world, and it will spread like a mustard plant until it takes over the entire garden. The branches of this kingdom will spread throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in the meantime, relax. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Pray, preach, and pursue the great commission. And lo, he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word from Holy Scripture, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet, Lord, feeling very much like the exact word for us today. We're thankful that you are sovereign over even the kings of the earth, that you sit and you watch, that you know exactly what is going on. You are not disinterested. You are passionately interested, passionately committed. And Lord, you regularly intervene and interrupt the flow of human history to accomplish all your will and all your purposes. You do this all for the good of your people and for the glory of your name and for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.